In fact, to me, wisdom is mostly about knowing what to embrace and what to release in life. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all with the aim of a happy life, a wise life, a more knowledgeable life. And today we have such a treat. We have PhD, philosopher, business ethics, national, global speaker, Tom Morris, author of about 30 books that is all delving into how we can use philosophy to guide our lives in a very practical way. I also want to say, this is going to be a shout out to Leon and Alan of Seize the Moment podcast, because they say that Tom is their favorite guest and he's been on their show. And I can absolutely see why. This was a fantastic episode, a great way to start out 2024. If anyone's wondering about their goals or how they should approach life, how they should approach change, this is the perfect episode. Yeah. And just for the record, I am not offended by our Seize the Moment podcast uh, um, compatriots saying that we are no longer their favorites because after speaking with Tom and reading his books, which I'm continuing to read, he could be one of my top guests because this is a life-changing person to listen to. We have to be careful we don't make Mark D. White jealous, right? (laughs) No, I I won't. I want, I want competition. I want Mark D. White to go daredevil all over uh, Tom Morris's ass. A daredevil episode is coming up, but let's stay on task here. We'll stay on task. Yeah. So this is just a, a wonderful, I'm, I'm just going to say, I first read Tom's book. It's of Aristotle Rand General Motors, because as you know, for a long time, I was teaching ethical considerations in technology, and that title just caught my attention. So that was years ago when I first became familiar with his work, and it was really a delight. Uh, he reached out to me through Twitter and I was just like, oh my goodness, I know exactly who you are. Please be a guest on our show. And yeah, it just unfolded into a beautiful, inspirational episode. And I'm very happy that this is our first episode of 2024. Okay. <laughs> What's our title on this one? Um, how, how, what about this one? How to make lemons with Tom Morris? No, no, no. That's not. I. You know what's so funny? I was thinking of the metaphor of lemons and lemonade because in this episode, he says, what if we are the lemons? <laughs> we are the lemons. Somebody could take the view that just being born is, is lemon and you have to, I mean, your life needs to be lemonade because yes. we're, just we're just under constant change. Maybe that's the title of the episode, We Are the Lemons. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's, I think it's how to make lemons with Tom Morris. Or how to make lemonade? No, no, no. Then people are thinking we've just been drinking vodka all day long when we've been recording this whole thing. <laughs> we're trying to make the vodka go down easier. <laughs> what about what to do with the lemons with Tom Morris? <laughs> nah, 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 how to make lemons. How to make lemons. Okay, perfect. And here we go. There's a phenomenon right now of budget cuts, philosophy departments closing. Yeah. And your work is using philosophy as a lens for us to understand leadership and business and how to navigate our work life. Oh, yeah. So since you have a background in philosophy and this is your work, what do you think about the closures or these budget cuts when it comes to philosophy departments? Like what would be your plea of, wait, this is a valuable thing that's part of a university education and part of a good life? That's what I would argue. You're absolutely right. I mean, 
it almost panders to the misunderstanding of an education to argue that philosophy as a major will prepare you really well for law school and really well for if if you want to be a computer software engineer in the future, the analytical abilities, it'll it'll prepare you for almost any kind of uh, career. But education is not just about preparing for a career because these days, you know, people can have three or four or five different careers during their lifetimes. How do they know which one to prepare for, right? So a great education just builds good people, good thinkers, good citizens, just good human beings. At its best, a good education prepares you for living a good life. And, you know, how better to uh, be a member of a society than to be well-prepared yourself, to have grown yourself as a, as a person, to have developed a broad point of view, to have developed tolerance and interest and curiosity and new ideas, a courage in exploring points of view, and just an analytical ability to understand um, what you hear. So I just think the, the short-sighted decisions to close humanities departments like philosophy are just, uh, it's a real shame in our time that the educators themselves often don't understand what they're doing. And some some of the uh, presidents of colleges and chancellors are, are brought in out of the business world, and they truly don't understand the full richness a great liberal arts education can provide. Yeah, I noticed that in your work, you use a lot of the ancient Greeks. Yeah. And I, I love that. I mean, that's actually part of the idea behind good is in the details is that I really love the ancient Greeks, and I like this notion of the good life and character development. So what is what is your draw to the ancient Greeks? Well, it's funny because the courses I took in philosophy as an undergraduate at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, were all contemporary 20th century courses in analytic philosophy and philosophy of science, things like that. I was never really introduced to the ancient philosophers at all. In fact, the history of philosophy was, you know, Wittgenstein at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the only living philosophers we basically studied. And it was only later in my graduate education that I took a seminar in Plato and Aristotle. And I thought, whoa, wait a minute. These guys were pretty smart. This stuff was going on back then. So in my own work as an analytic philosopher, I did a lot of work in logic and metaphysics and epistemology. And only as I got older did I get more and more interested in the wisdom tradition side of philosophy. Often you take an undergraduate course. My first philosophy professor was a guy who would come into the room to 300 students, freshmen, and say, hey, the universe popped into existence five minutes ago. Prove me wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a big argument would ensue, you know? And, or he'd walk in the room and say, hey, while we slept last night, everything that used to be blue turned green and everything that used to be green turned blue, but our mind shifted so that we can't tell the difference. Prove me wrong. I thought, wait, what is, what is this? Philosophy is like a tennis match, you know, the lobs and slams of argument. It took me a while to realize, wait a minute, there's a very different tradition of philosophy. Philosophy, a love of wisdom, a real search for the kind of wisdom that can help us live a good life. You know, as the years passed, I was a philosophy professor at University of Notre Dame for, what, 15 years, you know, writing books that 37 people in the world could understand Mm -hmm. and really technical articles in all the top journals. And I was having fun being a technical professional philosopher. Uh, A guy met me at an American Philosophical Association convention one day and said, oh, congratulations on your your new article in the Philosophical Review. I said, oh, thank you very much. He said, I tried to read it, but it gave me a massive headache. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, is that what I'm doing with my life? So I gradually came to rediscover the practical side of philosophy. And that's made all the difference in my own life. 
I hear you. I've felt that where I've gone to academic conferences and I love the process of working out ideas and being tested by scholars. But then there was a part of me of, I felt like I was preaching to the choir. Like I wanted to see what philosophy could do outside of that. And that's actually partly why, you know, Rudy and I do this podcast is to bring a philosophical lens to much broader issues. Oh yeah. It's a great idea. I mean, you know, Socrates just didn't go around talking to other people who were philosophically inclined. He went out, you know, hit the streets. He collared people everywhere and started asking them questions, you know, and Epictetus taught the sons of the wealthy and powerful from every walk of uh, Roman society and bringing wisdom to bear on the issues that people actually live. My own uh, development into what I call now a practical philosopher, kind of a public philosopher, was completely unexpected though. I thought I was gonna be in the classroom doing the theoretical stuff my whole career. And then suddenly about 30 years ago, uh, maybe even longer than that, it was the late 80s, a chamber of commerce group in South Bend called me and said, hey, could you come give a lot of young business people a talk on the ethics of decision-making. And I could have said, well, I'm not the ethics guy at Notre Dame. You're calling the wrong person. You know, call this guy instead. But I thought, okay, that sounds like an interesting thing to do. Let me put together something. And almost everybody in the room that day asked me to come to their Rotary Club, their Kiwanis Club, their church, their real estate company, their bank, do the same talk. So for about two years in South Bend, Indiana, I was giving free talks almost every week to every kind of group of people you could imagine. And they were getting so excited. They weren't like my really good students who were taking notes for the next exam. They were excited about using the ideas in their lives. And then one day an Oldsmobile dealer called me, of all things. And he said, hey, I'm a member of this association and we have a big meeting every year and we have these motivational speakers who talk about success, but they always say the same thing. You know, they say things like, uh, set a goal, you know, believe in yourself, you can do it. He said, there's got to be something deeper than that. Did the great philosophers of the past think about success? And I said, geez, not the kind of stuff I studied at Yale. Let me, you want me to look into it? He said, yeah, look into it. Maybe we'll have you as a speaker. So, I mean, that just changed everything for me. That is what led me to kind of rediscover the practical side of philosophy. And to see the kind of difference it can make in people's lives was really astonishing. I mean, I got a huge kick out of it. And again, everybody who was at the meeting told everybody else, you got to have this guy as a speaker. And before you know it, I was traveling the country, then I was traveling the world. And it's gone on now for almost 35 years. Tom, you have so many books. I've I mean, I want to get into talking about the art of achievement, but I have to ask because you have so many books and I'm looking at this and thinking, how does he crank all of these out? How do you do it? Endless enthusiasm. See, what people don't understand about me is I'm really a lazy person. No. But my life is long periods of indolence punctuated by intense bursts of activity because when I get interested in something... I just go nuts over that thing. And I, I start trying to figure it out. And maybe I'll give a talk about it and show people what I'm coming up with. And then uh, if that works, I'll give another talk and maybe I'll write some notes on that. And pretty soon I got a book. It's it's unbelievable. I wrote my first book when I was a senior in college because nobody told me, well, you're too young to write a book. It was turned down by 36 publishing companies. But number 37 said, yeah, sure, we'll do this. <laughs> Great. And so I was a published author at the age of 22 or 23, and I thought, wow, you know, uh, a royalty check started arriving in the mail, which was a new concept for me, but uh, I didn't know I was going to get paid for this, you know, because in philosophy, you often don't. But I realized I could reach a lot more people if I would write a book. So when people were scared of writing a dissertation in graduate school, you know, I'd sort of already done a full book. So what was a dissertation? And the dissertation became two books. 
So all of a sudden I had three books and then it started rolling and you're right, we're over, I'm up to over 30 at this point, I think 31, 32. I mean, it's hard to keep count. I just had the second edition of The Art of Achievement come out yesterday. The eBooks came out for Stoicism for Dummies, the newest book. The hard copies were shipped today. I just learned an hour ago. That'll be in all the bookstores within a week or two. And that'll be either book 32 or book 33. So it's all it's all curiosity and, and enthusiasm that leads me to... In fact, I started a new book two days ago. I've written 17,000 words, I think, in three days now. Oh, my gosh. Rudy, what do you think about that? Rudy and I both write. <laughs> so Rudy, yeah, 17,000 I, I mean, words I, in three days. I mean, I think that's it's absolutely incredible. And you're an inspiration in a lot of ways, Tom. You know, speaking about the art of achievement, your fantastic book about mastering the seven C's of success in business and in life. When you were writing this book, did you kind of back into it in that, oh, okay, I've written all these books or I've had the success because I've applied the seven C's and and I've lived by it? Or was it something that you discovered that um, is a way for everybody to kind of live their life and you just, you know, you just happen to live your life that way as well. So like, for example, your the very first C in your book is conception in that yeah. you, you really do need to have a clear goal in mind when mm-hmm. you're setting out, I suppose, in life, in trying to figure out your purpose. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll admit, I'm struggling a bit with my own goals. Having read read parts of your book and listened yeah. to some podcasts that you've been on, I'm now questioning my own goals. So let me let me ask you a really quick question. Does it have to be singular? Do you have to have a single goal or could you want many things? Can you talk yeah. about that? Yeah, I, that's good. Let me answer both the questions you've sort of asked. First of all, oddly enough, when I was asked to talk about success, I didn't even occur to me to look at my own life and how I'd had my own successes. Didn't even occur to me. Almost like the graduate students came to me one day and said, nobody teaches us how to teach. We have all these specialty courses in metaphysics and epistemology and logic and political philosophy and all this stuff, but there's no course in how to teach. You know, your courses are really popular, Dr. Morris. So would you, would you give us a, a special evening session on how to teach? And I said, Okay. And as soon as that graduate student left my office, I went straight to the library and checked out 20 books on how to teach. Not thinking of the fact that, you know what, I've been doing this pretty successfully for you know 10 years now. I started reading all these books, most of which were just not good, or they'd have a paragraph worth of good ideas in a 200-page book. But one was really good, Mastering the Techniques of Teaching, it was called. And when I finished reading that book, I realized it, I thought it was so good because it described what I did in the classroom. It was the first book to capture how I approach teaching. With the success writing, it was the same thing. The Oldsmobile dealer, when he called me, I didn't say to myself, well, I've been a success in my professional career. Let me just figure out what I've been doing. No, I didn't think of that at all. I go straight to the library, right? And I go back to the ancient thinkers. I start trying to find the practical philosophers who thought about success, who talked about success. And I start putting together bits and pieces. And it was kind of a long exploration. Every now and then you discover somebody like Emerson that just like every page is relevant to that subject practically. Or even in places like the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu, or, or Confucius, you find all these. So it's not just Western philosophy. In Cicero, you can come up with all kinds of great stuff, you know, 
And then I discovered the Stoic philosophers and, and their, their work is full of advice about success. And so I start sort of writing down all these notes and, and say, well, wait a minute, they end up all talking about goal setting in various ways. So maybe this all starts with a clear conception of what we want, a vivid vision, a goal clearly imagined, or maybe several goals clearly imagined. Clarity is important. Now, clarity often comes out of confusion. So it's something you have to work toward, you have to fight for. You're not always clear what you want next in your life. What's your next professional project? What's your next personal challenge going to be? I don't know. Let me let me think about it. A student actually, after the Osmobile talk, I was asked to give a lot of talks. I called them True Success, The Art of Achievement in Times of Change. And I gave a, a, the talk at a college once. And a student came up to me and he said, Professor Morris, I don't know what to do. I mean, I don't have any goals. And you talked about the importance of having goals. Well, how do I even get them? I mean, I don't, I don't even know how to start in coming up with life goals. And I said to him just spontaneously, not having thought about this that much, I just said that day, well, you know, take out a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, you know, a vertical line down the middle, put on one side things I like about my life right now and put on the other side, maybe the right column, things I don't like about my life right now. The list of things you like will be things you want to preserve in your life. And the things you don't like will be things you want to change. They will guide you to set some goals. Well, both sides will, because a lot of people set goals to make changes without thinking about what they want to preserve. So both things are important in prudential, rational goal setting that'll be right for you. Take out another piece of paper, make out another two columns. What I like about my schoolwork right now, what I don't like about my schoolwork right now, or my university experience, what I like about my relationships right now, what I don't like about my relationships. You can do these two lists on any aspect of your life, and they'll begin to give you guidance about the goal or set of goals you need to pose for yourself next. So the quest for success always starts with a goal. Now, I know that there are a lot of folks influenced by various traditions of Eastern philosophy who talk about goalless living, but they can't really make their case. For example, one book I read by that title, Goalless Living, if the guy hadn't set a goal to write a book, I wouldn't be able to hear about his ideas. I understand beautiful strands of Hindu thought and Buddhist thought that have to do with taking your goal more lightly than most people do. In fact, to me, wisdom is mostly about knowing what to embrace and what to release in life. And most people seem to get it all wrong, embracing things they need to release and releasing things they need to embrace. One thing about goal setting is it gives us direction, but we don't have to grasp onto the goal like that. That's the whole point. If we fail on attaining that goal, then everything has been a waste. Great Eastern philosophers direct us to the process itself, to immerse ourselves in the process. Embrace the process tightly, but hold to results very loosely. When you learn to do that, you tend to be one of the people who get the results, ironically enough. So there's just so much to be said about this. Thanks for asking about it. I think that makes incredible amount of sense, actually, the way that you explained the nuance there, that mm -hmm. Eastern philosophy. Yeah. If you are if you are a lazy person, you can glom onto the goalless yeah. life and literally achieve nothing because you're like, yeah. ah, no, I'm practicing Eastern philosophy and I'm <laughs> at a goal head and not have any goals. No, that's not the point. My understanding yeah. of, of those goals is... Okay, set the goal 
whatever that goal is, hopefully it's it's high enough where your journey will be long, your journey will yeah. be tough, your journey will be the best part of it. Should you A, achieve the goal, you could look back on that journey and then you could see this beautiful confidence that has come from it. Or B, should you not achieve that goal, but achieve something below that goal, you still went on that journey. It truly is about the journey there. That's how I interpret that. Oh yeah, even setting the wrong goal can be the, the end up being the right thing to do. For example, one of my students came back to see me years after she had graduated, many years after she graduated at Notre Dame. And she said, I said, I left Notre Dame wanting to be a country music singer. She said, and I mean, I would never have guessed that of this particular student. She said, so I set a goal. I'm going to move to Nashville. I'm going to become a country music singer. And of course, that means you're, you're a waitress for a while in Nashville restaurants. And she said, I go and I sing whenever I can. And after a couple of years, I realized I'm not as good as the people who become the professional singers. I'm not as good as the stars. Maybe this was the wrong goal. She said, but while in Nashville chasing the wrong goal, I discovered all kinds of things about the music business. Like, for example, there is a job called music business attorney that negotiate contracts and take care of the legal the lives of the, the, the stars, my favorite stars. And she said, I, the more I thought about it, the more I realized, well, maybe those are my talents. So she said, I ended up going to law school, getting a law degree, and now I am a music business attorney for all my favorite stars. And I hang out at their houses. We have picnics together and sing-alongs together. I'm fine for a sing-along in the backyard with the famous people, but I'm not as good as them. So she discovered her true calling by pursuing the wrong goal. So I tell people, lighten up a little bit, loosen up a little bit on, I don't know what the right goal is here. If it sets you moving, we learn as we do. You may or may not attain the goal that you set for yourself. You may attain something better. You may attain something very different. You're going to grow because there will be intrinsic aspects of the process that will deepen you and broaden you and develop you in ways that would not have happened had you not been pursuing that goal. Tom, let me ask you another specific question, and you do address this a bit in the in the Art of Achievement. Quite frankly, I think I know what the answer is going to be, but I'm going to ask it because I'm sure some listeners are wondering. Let's say your goal is a certain amount of money. I am going to get X by this age or Y by that age. Is that an acceptable goal? Right. You know, it's interesting. Many of the ancient philosophers had this rule of thumb that I like to call the functionality principle. The way I would state it is this. Very few things in this world are intrinsically good or intrinsically bad. Their value consists in how they function in our lives. And so money is one of those things. It's not intrinsically good or intrinsically bad. How does it function for you? So setting a goal with respect to a net worth or an income stream. One young man told me that uh, right out of college, he was doing a it may have been even been an unpaid internship in real estate development. And the developer brought me in as a speaker to speak to all the salespeople on true success, which was the first book I wrote on the seven C's, true success. The later book, The Art of Achievement, was when I came to understand that with respect to each of these seven universal conditions of success, with respect to each one of them, there is an art or skilled behavior. And the good news about that is once we understand that, we can get better. 
the first time you walk onto a tennis court, the first time you walk onto a golf course, the first time you show up at a yoga studio, you're not going to be very good. But there are skills you can develop. Same thing in each of these conditions for success. So the book True Success was just laying out the conditions. The book The Art of Achievement lays out the skills or the, the arts associated with each one. And so this young man said to me, you know, I heard you give this talk and and then I got a tape of the talk and I've listened to the tape probably over 300 times. I wore out the tape and I set, I was 22 years old when I heard you and I set a goal. I want to be by age 50. I want to be financially independent. I set myself a number that I wanted to make a certain amount of money by the age of 50 so that I could retire and do whatever I wanted to do. And in this conversation, he said, I'm calling you today because I'll soon turn 35 and I've already hit my number. And I'm going to be a high school basketball coach from now on. And I'm just going to try to do good for people. In this young man's life, his having a financial goal didn't make him sacrifice relationships, friendships, family life. He had a flourishing set of friends, a flourishing family life. It didn't make him do any kind of dirty deeds in business. He didn't cut any corners. He didn't do anything shady or unethical. But he was really focused on building a certain financial resource. He attained it. And he said years earlier than he would have. And he said, it's all because of the seven C's of success. He says, because I use that as my roadmap. He said, I've, I have a little laminated wallet card with the seven C's on it that I give out to audience members when I give a talk. And he said, I've given out hundreds of those cards. I've probably given out hundreds of copies of the book, True Success, of, of t audio tapes of your talk. And I train every at every every resort development I have done. I have trained the sales force in the seven C's and we'll meet every Monday morning. How do we do on these seven things last week? What do we need to do this week? I tell you that story because here's a guy who set a financial goal and most philosophers will say, no, 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 philosophy is not to be used that way. Well, I think the practical philosophers really saw it's all what you're going to do with the money, with the finances, with the resources. That's what counts. I like that a lot for a lot of reasons, because the reality is if money is that goal and it is by that age, then that's going to force you to think about how to achieve that. It's going to yeah. force you to, okay, maybe you'll buy lottery tickets every single week. Okay, that, <laughs> that, that's okay. It's all right. Luck plays a role into everything. But the reality is it actually may force you to do things that you wouldn't have done, take risks that you wouldn't have done. That's right. Identify opportunities that you wouldn't have identified had you mm -hmm. not set your goals really, really high. Maybe it forces you to get out of your comfort zone. And I know you've talked about, you know, the two different types of comfort zones that are out there. There's mediocrity and then there's yeah, taking yeah. your excellence and using that confidence. And, and I really enjoy that. So Good. yeah, I so I think the answer to your question is no, having money by a certain age is not a bad goal to have yeah. as long as you're realistic in what is it going to take the hard work that's going to get there and applying a system in order to get there. So thank you. That's really helpful. It relates to one of your earlier questions slash remarks, Rudy, that, yeah, it's fine to set financial goals if those are not the only goals you set, because we are more than just financial creatures, right? Right. You need to set uh, physical goals and spiritual goals and relationship goals and community service goals. And there are all kinds of goals you need to be setting in your life, and they need to be answerable to each other so that one doesn't come to just dominate your life in an unhealthy and obsessive way. That's the kind of advice I would give to people. And the seven C's of success have kind of a built-in, a buffer, a clear conception of what we want, a strong confidence uh, that we can attain the goal, a focused concentration on what it'll take, a stubborn consistency in pursuing our vision and emotional commitment, a good character to guide us and keep us on proper course, and a capacity to enjoy 
enjoy the process along the way. Those last two, the character condition and the capacity to enjoy condition, steer people away from the sort of pursuit of success that gets a lot of folks in trouble these days. So the most of the seven C's could be used by, you know, a safe cracker, an assassin. You know, I want a clear conception of a confidence, concentration, consistency. Yeah, right. You can do really terrible things and accomplish those terrible things by some of the conditions for success. But some of the other conditions kind of give us guardrails. In fact, let me just say this real quick. A college student from Madrid, Spain, came to visit me in North Carolina, where I live at the beach, a couple years ago. He wanted to talk philosophy. And so he wanted to go out for breakfast. So I take him to this little dive restaurant for breakfast and we sit down and he doesn't say, okay, what's good on the menu here? Or what have you had that you've liked? Or he's right away, he says, what is wisdom? He says, he just blurts it out, what is wisdom? And I gave him the answer often, goes, yeah, wisdom is insight for living, you know? It's, and then I thought, wait a minute, there's something deeper than that. And I said something I'd never said before. I said, wisdom is guidance and guardrails. And he said, what are guardrails? He's not a native English speaker. I say, you know, you're up in the mountains driving on a small mountain road, twists and turns, and sometimes there's a metal railing to keep your car from going over the side. Oh, okay, guardrails. I said, wisdom is, is about guidance, leading us forward in a valuable way. And it's about guardrails to keep your car from going off the side and crashing to the valley as you travel. Oh, okay, guidance and guardrails. I said, and wisdom is embodied inside about that. It's not just aphorisms, it's not just clever sayings. It's not just books full of scintillating sentences. It's wisdom is to be embodied. And if we give each other from that embodiment, the guidance and the guardrails, the guardrails keep us from misusing the guidance. So the seven C's of success, yeah, you could use these to do some bad things until you get down to number six, a good character to guide us and keep us on a proper course. And for most people, at least a capacity to enjoy the process. You're not going to enjoy you know, betraying people, uh, double dealing with people, making enemies. So the entire set of conditions offers us both the guidance and guardrails. When you think about it, most of the success and personal growth literature of the last 20 or 30 years has been about guidance and very little has been about guardrails, but both are important. Yeah, I really love the notion of goal setting. I do it in my own life. And a couple of weeks ago, I found myself kind of anxious about new goals. There, were, I thought, okay, there were some goals that I hit. And then all of a sudden, I was anxious about, well, how was I going to replicate that or move forward? And I had to give myself pause. And this is why I like your work where it's talking about the process and learning and enjoyment. Yeah. Because I had to sit back and think, wait a minute, I'm going to enjoy the goals that I hit. What am I doing where I'm constantly in forward motion, but I'm not enjoying the fruits of the labor and giving myself a pat on the back or a high five for the wins that I had. And I think that goes to your confidence section here is that you yeah. need to take the time to reflect on what you have achieved and give yourself yes. a congratulations because that will inspire you and give you the confidence to take that next step forward. Yeah. And you know, the capacity to enjoy the process along the way, that builds your confidence because the more you remember how you've enjoyed attaining the things you've already succeeded at in your life, the more that builds your confidence to tackle the next thing. In fact, the book that I sat down to start writing three days ago, I had tried to start it for two years and I had it as a goal, but every time I tried to start, something would get in the way. I had taken lots of notes. I had a big file on my computer for the topic. Yet always there was something putting it off. Okay, I can't get to it now. I'll get to it about a month or two from now. No, then something would happen again. Then something would happen again. Was I failing with respect to that book? Well, the last time I was delayed, I was supposed to start writing this past summer. And my wife went through a big health scare this summer. Ends up turning out absolutely fine. 
but she was diagnosed with a very rare and aggressive form of cancer that is so rare of 100,000 cancer patients, one person will have this particular cancer. She had to have surgery in August, a seven and a half hour surgery, a really serious surgery. She's back to normal now. She's cancer free. She's, you know, go live your life. You're great. It's the one curative surgery there is for cancer, blah, blah, blah. It was like amazing. The outcome. Yeah. Great outcomes. Two months, though, of living away from home, 18 days in the hospital room, sleeping, me sleeping in a chair, four weeks more living in a basement near the hospital just for follow-up stuff. And I realized the book is on uncertainty. And I realized I had a lot of great things to say. I had a lot of good advice to give people, but I had never lived through a period of time of that level of uncertainty in my life, of that level of challenge. My book, if I had written it two years ago, would have been a little superficial. It would have been full of good stuff, but it would have been far more superficial than it can be now. It can be deep now in a way it couldn't have been then. So even if we think we're not attaining the goals, we're not even getting to start on our goals. Maybe we are, but in ways that we haven't even imagined yet we need to prepare us to do well with those goals. And our concept of goals and success and happiness will shift. Like when you're talking about this health scare, the defining moment of what is a success or what is a good day would radically shift. And we have to be flexible and open to that. I know I hear, um, I mean, my daughter's about to turn four. I know I hear of other moms that they sometimes are struggling with the concept of success, but they're thinking of success of this outward notion of in terms only of financial goals or career goals, when thriving can mean the interaction and the beauty of the relationships that are building or connecting, that that's all part of success. Yeah, absolutely. You're so right. I remember early on my wife sharing those kind of insights with me. She said, too many young moms, you know, they think all of a sudden, oh, I can't go to the gym anymore. I can't be with my friends as much as I'd like to. You know, it's all about the needs of the baby. And my wife said, they forget that life is full of stages and phases. And that won't last forever. That stage of dependency won't last forever. In fact, you'll kind of regret when it's gone. Change your goals, change your expectations in the midst of that special stage. And then you can get back to the old ways of doing things in the future. It does, it's not going to change your life forever. You know, so we have to understand there are seasons of our lives and our goals can be quite different in those, in those different seasons. There's no monorail through life. We're more like all-terrain vehicles, right? We have to somehow sometimes get off the path we've been on and maybe we'll find our way back to that same path in the future, but enjoy where we are now and make the most of the opportunities and commitments we have now. That's an important thing. And on that point right there, maybe this is a really good segue, if you don't mind, away from setting goals. Although I think that's a wonderful thing, especially as we're talking, as we're going into a new year and people set goals for New Year's. So let's talk about enjoying what you have right now when there is change or when there's adverse change, which is the subject of your other book, Plato's Lemonade Stand, which by the way, I tell you in reading the preface, and I, I highly recommend to any reader out there, I'm one of those people that normally skips prefaces, um, yeah. Tom, but I read <laughs> yours and I was able to take from it so many great pieces of wisdom just yeah, from yeah. the first two pages where literally I found, I literally found 
what <laughs> our show, Good as in the Details, is mm. about. For years, we've struggled about the value yeah. proposition that we have for our show. Why do we yeah. do our show? Why yeah. philosophy? And it's literally right here, right here on page two, <laughs> where you talk about practical philosophy, yeah. how important it is today. It's an ancient, deep tech needed anew in our high tech world. It's yeah. the domain of wisdom and virtue, true insight and inner strength that you use philosophy yeah. in order to deal with large scale problems, with large scale changes, with large scale uncertainty. Yeah. And I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on that. Much like the art of achievement, you were set to go find uh, what do the philosophers say about success? Yeah. How did you come up with this? And just, I mean, I have the book in my hand before our listeners, like really uh, the whole point of practical philosophy in dealing with our crazy tech world today. Glad you asked this because I'm thrilled about page two. It's funny, I have this other book, a short novel called The Oasis Within, and a CEO in California sent me a message one day and he said, page five of your book, The Oasis Within, has changed my life forever. <laughs> so I got in touch with him right away and I said, okay, tell me about it. And he told me the story and I said, well, keep reading. There are a lot of other pages in the book too. <laughs> but that's great that, that by page two, you get this. And a lot of people don't know, you know, philosophy, philosophy, a love of wisdom. I like to say an object of love is an interesting thing. When you lack it, you pursue it. When you have it, you embrace it. Philosophy is about the pursuit and embrace of wisdom, which is just how to live well, you know? So this book, Plato's Lemonade Stand, you wouldn't believe it, but that book took me 15 years to write. I wrote 24 different versions. It had six different titles. It was turned down for publication 44 times. Mm. <laughs> so talk about making uh, taking lemons and making lemonade. And now it's like one of my favorite books I've ever, I've ever done. But it was launched by a big financial services company. They were one of the biggest issuers of credit cards in America. I had spoken to their leadership team two or three times on my book, True Success, Seven Seas, on the ideas from If Aristotle Ran General Motors, Truth, Beauty, Goodness, and Unity, Corporate Culture Stuff, and uh, Human Happiness Stuff. They called me up one day. I'd done two or three talks for their leadership people. They called me up one day, uh, a young woman uh, who was in a fairly advanced leadership position. She said, hey, um, I don't know if you've heard the news, but we're going to be bought by Bank of America. And the day the deal goes through, our boss, the CEO, the guy who's been hiring you, Tom, he gets like, I don't know what it was, $20 million that day, something like that. And we don't, the rest of us don't even know if we're going to have a job because we have 6,000 credit card people. They already have 9,000 credit card people. They're not going to end up with 15,000 credit card people. Okay. So everybody's depressed. There's no morale around here right now. We're not excited at all. It's kind of the opposite. Have you ever given a talk on how to deal with difficult change? And just like the people who asked me to speak on ethics, and I could have said, well, no, I'm not the guy. Call the ethics guy. Uh, no, I haven't. Would you like me to look into it? Yeah. Could you come up with something? We'd like to have a meeting of our top 750 people in a couple months. So if you could come up with something about how to handle difficult change in the next couple months, we'd love to have you come and give a talk on that. I said, okay. So it was called The Art of Change. I did a 45-minute talk. First time I'd ever been in front of a group of people talking about that topic. And they gave the, the ideas this huge standing ovation. And everybody came running up to me afterwards to hug me. And people had smiles on their faces. And they said they hadn't seen smiles in that, in that building in a very long time. During a, a reception afterwards, a, a young woman came up to me and she said, look, I was an Olympic athlete before I came here. 
And she said, you said in 45 minutes what my coach was trying to teach me for 15 years and could never quite articulate. She said, you put it all into words today. And the person who hired me for a talk called me two weeks later and she said, well, that 45 minutes, you turned around this company. You turned around the attitude of our whole culture. She said, thank you so much. And you did it with philosophy. Nobody would have guessed. (laughs) I said, well, thank you very much. It has made a huge difference in my own life. The ideas in the book. I I mean, I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, and I must have heard my parents' friends say a hundred times, you know, Tommy, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade. When life hands you lemons, make lemonade. They would say it over and over and over, but nobody ever said how. So I get the image, right? It's, It's more than resilience. Resilience is when something bad happens, bounce back, you know, to where you were. Keep going. Grit, we've been talking about for 10 or 15 years now. Perseverance, when some bad things happen, we get knocked down, get back up and soldier on. Well, lemons to lemonade is something way beyond resilience, bouncing back and grit soldiering on. It's going from difficulty to actually to delight. It's a transformative thing. And I said, I want to see if the philosophers had anything to say about how to engage in deep transformation like this. And I saw I've discovered all this amazing practical stuff. I gave a bunch of talks. People continued to go nuts. It finally became the talk, Plato's Lemonade Stand. That finally became the title of the book, which came out right before the pandemic. came out in January of 2020. And so when the pandemic hits, everybody's getting in touch with me because how to deal with difficult change? Oh my goodness, that was the topic of the year, of the decade, of the era. And people say, what are you, some sort of genius writing a book about how to deal with difficult change a couple months before the most difficulties we've ever faced? I said, look, not me. I'm no genius. It's just I've been working on this book 15 years and the doggone thing was finally ready at the right time. Yeah, speaks very, very well to exactly what you're saying about timing. And, you know, don't always beat yourself up for not achieving that goal or writing that book or doing that. Sometimes timing Sometimes bad luck that delays your timing is good luck. It all depends upon how you view it. And and that was one of the things that I've taken so far out of Plato's Lemonade Stand, Tom, but I'd like you to get some more details is a lot of it is shifting your mindset about the negative, about the change, literally taking the lemons. Okay, I got some lemons. How am I going to make this into lemonade? What other ingredients do I need to add to make this the lemonade? What's the sugar? Where's the ice? What's the mixing stuff? The essence is, is it all about a mindset shift or is is there something else that's the secret? It all starts with the mindset shift. I mean, your question itself is so wisely put because there is a tradition of positive thinking that it's all in the mind, right? But lemons to lemonade is not all in the mind. I can think those that pile of lemons that they are lemonade, but if I squeeze that lemon, it's not going to and drip it into my mouth. It's not going to taste like lemonade. You start with a mindset shift, but that mindset shift then leads you to do certain things you would not otherwise be doing. Like right, you metaphorically, what is the water? What is the sugar? What are the what are the other ingredients I need here? How can I be truly alchemistic? How can I be transformative with this situation? Lemons are going to stay lemons, um, but they can be squeezed into something else. And to me, it was only the end of the book that I came to finally realize, wait a minute, maybe there's a sense in which ultimately we are the lemons. We are being squeezed by life. 
into what can be amazing lemonade. But it's up to us to help in the process. Unlike those passive lemons that grow on a tree in my backyard, it's up to us to help in the process. And the great philosophers have found out how. And we're here to be transformative, but even more deeply, we are here to be transformed. And once we take that perspective, it's not all about what happens out there in the external world. It's all about what happens in me as well. And I've got to have that twofold attitude about it. Yeah, the mindset is hugely important. And there are all kinds of attitudinal shifts that help us to do the right thing. So the right attitudes lead to the right actions. I'm all about that as a philosopher, but ultimately it's the actions we take based on the attitudes and shifting perspectives that give us those outcomes that we need and that even the most, the greatest of difficulties can help us produce. Like the illness I went through with my wife recently, it's helped me to write a, a much better book. It has brought people together in new ways. It's introduced new people to each other. It's had all kinds of positive effects. I would never wish that on anyone, but once it happens, you learn to be transformative. And that's, I mean, you brought in your wife, you brought in those horrible months, and I applaud that. Yeah. We're in some very uncertain economic times. We're in some very uncertain political, geopolitical times. There are a lot of major tragedies here, and this is life. Really, the terrible things happen. Is it truly just a mindset shift if the truly tragic does occur? Obviously, you need to go through a grieving process, sure, but, you, sure. but is, is it the mindset shift that gets you out of that and gets you moving? Yeah. Is that what we're talking about here? It is. I give some examples in the book of, of people I've known who've gone through true tragedies of the worst sorts, and they have found a way to be transformative in that. Taking lemons and making them into lemonade can sound like a silly, stupid, trivial metaphor when it comes to genuine tragedies. But it's not the metaphor itself that's important. It's what's behind it. This whole thing that we are here to be transformative. And so if good things happen, transform them into even better things. If bad things happen, try to be transformative there too. How about with true tragedies? I tell a couple of stories in the book about people who've turned that into a form of goodness that it just makes you leaves me almost speechless in hearing what people are able to do now, not right away, right? Like you say, there, there's a grief period, there is a growth period, and the philosophers weren't often about instant results, but they were about mind shifts that can lead to important growth and results over the long term, and that's what's most valuable for us. It seems like part of it would be letting go of control. Because then you would have yeah. the most resistance yeah. if you think, oh, something wasn't supposed to be such and such a way. But then the world will throw right. you that curveball, right? <laughs> and say, no. So yeah. it's about our reaction. Yeah, we have all this false sense of what we can control. The new book, Stoicism for Dummies, there's a big chapter. Uh, that's a big idea for the Stoics. You know, you got to distinguish between the things in life you can't control and the things you can control. And Epictetus and others said, just let go of the things you can't control. Focus on the things you can control. Now, one of the things they didn't say, but as a philosopher, I was able to find my way through this, is if we do concentrate on the things we can control, which are very few, it's not just about control or power, it's also about influence. There are very few things we can control, but there are other things, a broader a sphere that we can at least influence. If we learn to concentrate on those things, the sphere of our true control and influence, which isn't very big, and let go of the other things, a false sense of control about all the other things, then we can actually expand the sphere. 
in which we can make things happen. But if we have all kinds of false views about what we're in control of, it can lead to unnecessary frustrations. So you give up control about a lot of stuff, but you do learn self-control. In fact, in the book, Plato's Lemonade Stand, I kind of lay out three arts, I call them, the, uh, which together make for an art of change. One's the art of self-control. One's the art of positive action. One's the art of achievement, which relates to the other book. So the art of self-control has little three components. It says, don't rush to judgment. Don't be too quick to say, this is great. This is terrible. This is awful. This is the hardest thing that's ever, worst thing that's ever happened. This is the best thing that's ever happened. Irrational exuberance can be just as bad as unnecessary depression in somebody's life. Don't rush to judgment too quickly about things. Secondly, value the right things. If you value comfort and security too much, almost anything's going to unhinge you and scare you that threatens that comfort and security. But if you value growth and learning, then you can embrace a, a broader array of things that come your way. Number three, so don't rush to judgment, value the right things. Use your imagination well. It's the imagination out of control that causes most people most of their suffering. And so if we use to learn our imagination, to use our imaginations well, then we take charge of uncertainty. We take charge of difficulty in a new way that empowers us. And there's, you know, the art of positive action says once you've engaged the self-control, then there's certain things you have to do to start taking action, start making the lemonade, right? And then the art of achievement, bring it to completion, bring it to success. So I lay out the steps of each of those arts in the book. And again, you know, I'm not just making this up. I'm searching the world's wisdom literature for, okay, what's going to help me? In fact, Rudy, what you said earlier about postponement and stuff. Yeah, I, I was Im immensely frustrated. I couldn't get the book published in time for the Great Recession because I had a version of it ready for the recession, help people through the recession. But I could never quite get it finished. I said, oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. But no, it was ready for the pandemic, which was even worse for people to deal with than the recession. So again, you know, the external timing is not up to us. There's so much that's not up to us. We have to give up our false sense of control about all that stuff. Just do our best with the process. And we're going to be blessed by it. And so will other people. This is one of the things I really like about Aristotle's work that I see coming in your work is that this idea of happiness or the Greek idea of eudaimonia, a flourishing of excellence, that when we keep our eyes on that, then it's much easier to achieve things. And money and fame, if we have that as the yeah. goal, that's not really helping us flourish. But money and fame can be the byproduct, the potential byproduct. Yeah. But if we look at that as the right. goal, and to me, I think that that's one of the problems with today where you have higher rates of depression is that we have lost sight of teaching, and this has to do with education as well, that the goal is excellence and flourishing, the eudaimonia. Yeah. I think that Aristotle was yeah. right about that. And we've shifted it. And I've told my students, I've challenged them in terms of social media. I say, I just want you to try this. Do not look at your social media or even your emails first thing in the morning. Don't look at your phone first thing in the morning. Because when you do that, you're doing a couple of things. You are seeing what other people think about you, or you're looking at mm -hmm. what other people are doing. And you're starting out your day not thinking about what's in your control. How can I be excellent? You're starting your frame of mind by thinking about what others think about you or what you think about other people or what other people are doing. Yeah. And it's really important to have that mindset shift, especially when the world throws us curveballs to sit back and think, wait a minute, I can work on my writing. I can work on my relationships. Yeah. I am responsible for how good of a listener I am. 
mm-hmm. how I'm preparing mm-hmm. my food. These are all the things that are in the control. And that eventually radiates out to having a more enjoyable life. You're absolutely right. You know, Aristotle, of course, you know, I love Aristotle. He was one of my favorite philosophers ever. Of course, he didn't get everything right. Nobody does. Um, but he got some really important things right. And this whole idea of eudaimonia and well-being generally, human flourishing, that has to come from the inside out. Going to social media first thing in the morning, that's going outside in, right? That's the opposite approach. We need to ground ourselves within ourselves in the things that matter to us most. And then we're ready for stuff like social media. I post something across social media every morning. But I first of all do a little pondering myself before I reach out to other people to start conversations going. And as a matter of fact, that's what writing books is about for philosophers. That's what what writing essays is about. That's what podcasts are about, starting conversations with others. I mean, we don't pretend to have all the answers, but if we can enter into a conversation where we spark others to have their own ideas about what we're talking about, then we've done a good thing. I want to ask you about something else that's in the art of achievement that was a bit of a relief when I read this, because I have anxiety. And I know Rudy and I have talked about this. We even did a whole episode on anxiety. And you write, the more intelligent you are, the more you may tend to worry. So Rudy, that's a plus for us. But you also write, anxiety (laughs) and even fear can on occasion play a positive role in human life. Anxiety is often what makes us slow down and take care in what we're doing. It can be our guide to minimizing Mm -hmm. unnecessary risk and maximizing long term sustainable use of our resources. I I like that you write this because I think we think of anxiety as an inherently bad thing, try to get rid of it, maybe even numb it in unhealthy ways, instead of taking a look at, wait, what is this state telling us? Yeah. And see, this is so important. To manage our emotional energy is a big challenge for almost everybody. And it's something the philosophers have, have not ignored. For example, in my own case, it used to be that when I was being introduced to go out on a stage in front of a thousand people, 5,000 people, 10,000 people, and I was going to try to do a great job, give them a great experience. When I was introduced, whether I was out in the audience front row, whether I was backstage, I would feel my heart rate really going up. And I used to say long ago, "Uh uh-oh, I'm getting nervous. But I finally learned to say to myself, I'm getting ready because I realize there's a level of emotional energy that propels us to excellent results. It was the cha- some of the championship athletes I was able to talk to about this who told me the same story. The people who truly care get nervous. They get worried. They get anxious. It's a reflection of the fact that they care. But if instead of saying to themselves, I'm getting worried, I'm getting nervous, I'm getting, if they say, I'm getting ready to do a great job here. Uh, surf on that energy. Take that wave and make it work for you. Don't let that wave knock you over backwards and half drown you. Surf on it. Use it. I love it. Rudy, see, we're smart. That's why we have anxiety. I love that. <laughs> I love that. You know why I love that? Because I'm a horrible surfer. I just, I mean, I have the worst balance on earth. I, I Every time I go to Hawaii, I take a lesson and I, and I actually seem to get, the first time I ever surfed, I got up. And ever since then, I've done horribly. But, but... <laughs> But I've got a lot of worries. I've got a lot of anxiety. And I bet you, because of all the worries and and anxiety that I have, that I've learned to surf and conquer over the years, I'm probably the world. I'm the Kelly Slater 
of anxiety yeah. worry. That's <laughs> there, there you go. That's, that's there you go. Stuff. Tommy just made my year. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing, Rudy. You have found the waves that you can surf well. Right? Yeah, I, you're right, man. And it just kind of show you like that's the way life is, you know, and life's a, a wonderful, beautiful thing if you have the right mindset. And these books that you put out and the podcast that you put out, Tom, you are you, you really are a gift to put out all of this stuff and to help us face these difficult times and to put out this energy and put out this way of thinking and to take philosophy, this ancient, you know, I like to joke around the philosophy is useless. I, I, deep down, I know it's not useless. <laughs> deep, deep down. I just didn't know. <laughs> deep down, deep down, I, deep, 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 deep down. But, you know, it's part of the shtick. I'm still going to say yeah. it's useless, but truly you have found at least one use case for it. And that yeah. is to live a better life no matter what happens to you. And so I thank you. Thank you. You know, you're, you're right about so much of theoretical philosophy. I mean, we don't explore the Gettier paradox or five versions of the ontological argument or, you know, examine uh, the notion of names as rigid designators for any useful purpose at all. I mean, so much of the work I did in modality, necessity, possibility, impossibility, discovering new modalities of property exemplification. What good is that to anybody? No good whatsoever, except it was really admired by the people who clap the way they would at a great tennis serve or something. But if we can discover that little stream of philosophy that is concerned with what it's etymologically supposed to be concerned with, the philosophia, if we start doing that kind, and it's almost a revolutionary act in an era where almost all philosophy under that name is theoretical, it's all about analysis and argument. And we want to do the analysis, but we want the advice to come out of the analysis that will help us live the guidance and guardrails that will make a difference for doing good in the world and doing good in our own lives. And thank y'all for the way you do this podcast to bring people ideas they can use to stimulate new thought. This was not going on years ago. I mean, I know there weren't podcasts years ago, but not even on radio, on television. Whenever I got to be on things like NPR or the Today Show or things like that, I wasn't the 12th philosopher they had ever had. I was doing something that hadn't been done before. And so you all bringing people ideas they can use where they are as they exercise, as they drive, as they live their lives. It's a wonderful thank thing. Thank you, Tom. That means yeah, a lot. Thank you, Tom. Really and we're excited to really be promoting you and your books for people needing guidance in 2024 and beyond. It's really a, an absolute joy to read your books and to talk with you. I'm so excited to talk with you. <laughs> <laughs> this is lovely. Always try to have fun, you know? <laughs> Goodness in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Salo. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. Take a screenshot of this episode or your favorite episode and tag us on Instagram, Goodness in the Details Pod. You can join our Patreon to get extra content and join our book club, patreon.com slash goodisinthedetails. And we'd also like to thank our sponsor for this episode, avonmoreinc.com. If you play bridge or if any of your friends or family play bridge, you've got to go to avonmoreinc.com. Let them know that Good Is In The Details sent you. They have everything you need from cards, coasters, bridge tallies, everything you need for the party. avonmoreinc.com. Check it out in the show notes. Okay, until next time. Bye.